When were you saved? If you have been saved, if you are a Christian and have put faith in Jesus Christ and are saved, you've thought about that question and you've thought about the answer to that question. As elders, as people apply for membership at King's Church, one of the questions that is asked of them in the application is to write out just a little bit regarding how they came to Christ. What was the circumstances? How old were they? Tell us the story. We love to hear those stories. We want to make sure they understand the gospel before they become members of a church and our church. But let's go back to that question. When were you saved? I was reading this week online and I came across an article in which the writer asked that same question. When were you saved? And here was the answer. On Golgotha in the early A.D. 30s. I was intrigued by that answer and my heart resonated with it. For anyone who will be saved, anyone who is saved, that statement is true of them. They were saved on Golgotha, the place of the skull, in the early A.D. 30s, when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. As we go through our Bibles, it's so apparent that the design of the atonement, what was intended, took place. The extent of the atonement is seen by the design of the atonement. What was God intending to do in the cross of Christ? All through our Bibles, we see this from the earliest chapter in the New Testament. You remember the angel came to Joseph and uh, told him to take Mary as his wife because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then these words were said to Joseph, the angel speaking, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1, verse 21. Question for you. Do you think he did that? Is that what he did? Did he save? Did he save his people? Did he save his people from their sins? The answer, of course, is yes. He did exactly that. And notice the language of Scripture here. It's not that Jesus will make people savable if only they will do something. No, he will save his people from their sins. What a statement. It goes right along with 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. Let's turn in our Bibles. I want us to see these words, even though it's easy to quote them. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And it expresses here the intention of God in the Son of God coming into the world. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. This saying the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Of course, this goes right along with what we just read in Matthew 1. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, here in First Timothy, Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Again, not to merely make them savorable, savable, savable. 
Uh, John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, writes this. If we concentrate on the thought of redemption, we shall be able perhaps to sense more readily the impossibility of universalizing the atonement. Let me stop there. What he's talking about there is to say that the cross atoned for everyone's sins of everyone who ever lived, past, present, and future. Uh, No. What does redemption mean? It does not mean redeemability, that we are placed in a redeemable position, continuing the quote of John Murray, it means that Christ purchased and procured redemption. This is the triumphant note of the New Testament whenever it plays on the redemptive chord. Christ redeemed us to God by his blood. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. He obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 9 verse 12. He gave himself for us in order that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. You read of that in Titus chapter 2 verse 14. He died to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify to himself a people for his own possession. Continuing the quote, it is to beggar the concept of redemption as an effective securement of release by price and by power to construe it as anything less than the effectual accomplishment which secures the salvation of those who are its objects. Christ did not come to put men in a redeemable position, but to redeem to himself a people. Did he do it? Did he accomplish this? Yes, and he did it for all who are saved. All God's people. So, from the Old Testament times, Abraham and David and all of the saints of Old Testament times, through to the New Testament, anyone who is saved now, in our time, they were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. That's the good news of the gospel. We're saved by the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Jesus made it clear what his intention was. Go with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. This is the great chapter, of course, on Jesus as the great shepherd. And these are the words of Jesus. This is Jesus talking about what a good shepherd is and how he is the good shepherd and what the good shepherd does. Rather than fleeing the scene when there's... Uh, an attempt to devour the flock. He stays with the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. The thief, that's the false teacher in concept, uh, in context here, John chapter 10, verse 10, if you read the context, the thief here is not the devil, it's the false teacher. Of course, they're inspired by the devil. But the thief here is the false shepherd. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they, that's the sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, verse 11. 
the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So much is in this passage, of course, but just want to highlight a couple of things here. He's the good shepherd. He knows his sheep, and he lays down his life for the sheep with intention. And then he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, in this context, he's in Israel speaking to Jews, and so it makes sense to say, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, of this Jewish fold. And here is the unmistakable prophetic statement of Jesus that Gentiles are going to be saved because he lays down his life for them. They too are sheep. And he lays down his life for them. And it's not that they might come. They may come. No, they will come. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. He has a people. He lays down his life for them. And in time, they're coming to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus said. John chapter 6, verse 37. What a wonderful promise that is. Jesus has been given a people in eternity past an an identifiable people. Specific people, not a nameless, faceless throng, but specific people as a love gift from the Father to the Son. And all that the Father, not most, not 82% in a great week, but 100%, all that the Father gives me will come to me. They have to come to him to be saved. But all that the Father gives me, Jesus said, will come to me. It's the giving of the Father to the Son, a group of people, that will in time show itself as the people coming. It's the giving that comes before the coming. It's the giving of the Father to the Son of a people that will in time be seen by the coming of a people to the Son. Who are those people? All that the Father gives me. They will come to me. It says, Acts 13 verse 48 says, All who were appointed to eternal life believed. It was a statement of Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, after seeing people come to Christ. And just as a commentary, he was about to move on to the next thing that happened. And just as a casual commentary, all that were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, all who had the appointment made the appointment. There are some times when I've had an appointment with a dentist and 
I've had to cancel. I didn't make the appointment. Something came up and uh, I was ill or something like that. And I, I had to call ahead of time and say, I'm not going to be able to get there. I'm sorry. Uh, we'll have to reschedule the appointment. That's not what we see outlined in Acts 13.48. All who had the appointment made the appointment. What was the appointment? The appointment to believe. <laughs> All who had the appointment made the appointment. And Jesus had the appointment of Calvary, place of a skull, Golgotha. I, he says, must bring them also. Who's the, who's the them? Other sheep. They will listen to my voice. They're coming. There's going to be one flock, one shepherd. It's beautiful language, isn't it? There'll be one flock, one shepherd. The flock made up of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, this fold and those that are not of this fold. Jewish people and Gentile people. And there'll be one flock. Of course, this is outlined in Ephesians chapter 2. God has, through the death of Christ on the cross, destroyed and abolished the wall between Jews and Gentiles. And now there's one people who are his, out of Jewish people, out of Gentile people. And now are one new man in Christ. Now, in this context, we then read further in John and Jesus is looking people right in the face, right in the eyes. And we read that the people listening to this message didn't like it. That happened so often as Jesus spoke. And he didn't say, look, look, I know you didn't like this sermon, but would you come back next week? I'll have a more palatable one, one that you'll enjoy. No, he, he just let the truth loose. He did. John chapter 6, most people left after his sermon on divine election and Jesus turned to his own disciples and said, are you going to go away too? He didn't say, look, I'll be giving bicycles away next week. <laughs> Come back. Of course, there weren't such things as bicycles back then. But he didn't say, here's the draw for next week. No, he says, are you going to go away too? Peter spoke up, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? We're here. You're the only show in town. You're the only one. We're here. We're your sheep. So the, the, the people said, well, how long will you keep us in suspense? This is John chapter 10, verse 24. If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. All right. Here's a group that are identified as unbelievers. This was Jesus' assessment. We don't know who true believers are and those who are not true believers. We can be fooled. Jesus cannot. And he looked people right in the face and said, you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because, stop there, let our ears prick up. Jesus is now going to explain why they don't believe. When he says, you don't believe because, that's exactly what he's doing. These are the words of Jesus, so plain. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Wow. 
doesn't Jesus realize that this kind of message would be hmm, uh, a hardship for people to grasp? No, it's, 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 it's very easy to grasp. It's very hard to swallow, but it's very easy to grasp. He's looking at them in the face, calling them unbelievers and explaining their unbelief by saying, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. In contrast, verse 27, the next verse, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me. Notice that? Same expression as we've already read and heard about in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Here again, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's not there speaking of the fact that that, uh, the Father and Jesus are the same person. That's not in view. The Father is a person. The Son is a person. He's speaking about mission. He's speaking about intent. We're on the same cause. We're about the same thing. I'm here to do the Father's will. We're one in this. I and the Father, we are one. And the reaction. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They wanted him dead. People don't like this message, especially when Jesus is explaining their unbelief and saying, you're not my sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. You're not my sheep. Do you get that? I lay down my life for the sheep. Same context. And you're not my sheep. What's the implication? I'm not laying down my life for you. I'm laying down my life for the sheep. You're not my sheep. So Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Do you see the words here? I must bring them. They will hear my voice. I must. and They will. Do you hear that? I must. They will. Jesus goes to the cross with certainty about what he'll do and how his sheep will respond. He's dying for the sheep. He's laying down his life for the sheep. In John chapter 10, he makes it clear, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, he says as he prays to the Father. Again, same context, same concept. I'm praying not for the world, John 17, verse 9, but for those you have given me, for they are yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Again, we're one in this. All mine are yours, all yours are mine. We're on a mission together. He prays for his sheep, those who will believe his word. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah just very quickly. Isaiah 53. Again, we can go Old Testament, New Testament and see this. There are so many statements regarding the intention of God in the cross. Verse 4, the center of the center of the gospel here, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. 
Who, who are the our? He was crushed for our iniquities. Who, who are the our here? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Uh, who is the us here? And with his wounds, we are healed. Who are the we here? Well, verse 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is the us here, the us all? Well, just continue reading. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Speaking of the death of Christ, the death of the Messiah. Again, Isaiah 53, written around 700 years B.C., before the time of Christ. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Although this was written as in the past tense, he was cut off. This is a prophetic statement about what the Messiah would do, the suffering servant would do when he came. He was cut off out of the land of the living. That means he was dead, stricken, For what exactly? For the transgression of my people. Ah, so in context, we have the understanding then of who the hour is, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace with his wounds. We are healed. Who is that referring to? my people, all of my people, us all. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Oh, his offspring. That was the intent. See his offspring. He's dying for his offspring. He's dying for his people. He shall prolong his days. That's the resurrection. He's dead, according to verse 8. He's alive, according to verse 10. He shall prolong his days. He's going to live again. The will of the Lord, Yahweh, shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear, whose? Their iniquities. Who did he account righteous? The ones that he bared their guilt those to whom he bore their guilt, their iniquities. Read the statement again. Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He bears their iniquities, he makes them righteous. Same group, same people. Continue reading, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. Again, 
prophetic statement of the cross of Christ and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. On to the end of our Bibles, Revelation chapter 5. We know the extent of the atonement when we understand the intent. Revelation chapter 5, a prophetic statement of what I believe still is future, when the gathered saints are around the throne, all of them, and they're singing the same song, a song of redemption to the Lamb. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, this is Revelation 5 verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, the Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. You were slaughtered. And by your blood, by your death, by your blood, by the blood shed, by your blood, you redeemed people for God. You ever seen the specific statement here? You didn't merely make people redeemable. No, by your blood, you actually redeemed people. You redeemed people by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Grasp the significance of verse 9. By your blood, you ransomed people. Uh, is everyone in view? It looks like a universal statement. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Ah, but it doesn't say he redeemed everyone in every tribe and everyone in every language and everyone in all people groups and everyone in all nations. No, he ransomed people for God from, out of, every tribe and language and people and nation. He didn't redeem all without exception. Look at the text. From. What a key word. He ransomed people. Not merely make them ransomable, but he ransomed people for God out of, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Not all without exception, but all without distinction. This verse and many like them propelled the missionary movement of the church. Why? Well, people in America and England and elsewhere reading their Bibles realize this. Wow. There are people in every tribe, language, people group and nation who are God's elect. And so let's go get them. Let's round up the sheep. And... Election didn't stult if I or diminish evangelism. It was the basis of it. Wow. 
there are people in every tribe who are going to be around the throne. There are people in every language group, every people group, every nation who are going to be around the throne because Jesus died for them and ransomed them. So understand this, evangelism is simply the roundup of the sheep. Some people have the idea if you believe in divine election, you can't be very good at evangelism or you're not really interested. No, it's election that is the source and power of evangelism, which means God is going to save people through the means of preaching. He's going to do it. He's going to save them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the message of Christ. Romans 10 verse 17. How will they hear without a preacher? And Romans 10, ladies and gentlemen, is in the context of Romans 9. Romans 9, all about election. Romans 10 is how shall they hear without a preacher? The two go together. Hallelujah. The intent of the atonement is the extent of the atonement. So said Steve Lawson. So true. Jesus came not to make men savable, but to save. He redeemed people for God. Now, the value of the cross of Christ is infinite. On one side of the aisle, we have people that limit its power. On the other side, there is a limitation on its extent. But unless we're universalists, believing that everybody will be saved because of the cross, which is actually a heresy, we do limit the atonement. But we say it's infinite in value. But it saved all for whom it was intended. Not a drop of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in sacrifice was wasted. He saw his offspring and was satisfied. If we don't believe that, we have a dissatisfied Savior for all eternity. Oh, I, I, I died for them, but there they are in hell. No, there will not be one sinner in hell whose sins were redeemed. That's why they're paying for their sins. You see, if we don't accept that, we have double jeopardy. You ever heard that concept? You can't do that in courts of law. People would have to pay twice for the same crime. No. In that, that view that Jesus died for everybody, and we understand not everybody's saved, you have Jesus dying for a people, all people, some ending up in hell, and Jesus supposedly died for their sins, was punished for their sins, and now the sinner's being punished for their sins. That's double jeopardy. No. Jesus on the cross saved his people from their sins. He laid down his life for his sheep. Not everybody's a sheep. It's so clear when you see it. What a powerful savior. What a powerful savior. It's an efficacious sacrifice. It did all that was intended. And this is what brings assurance. The opposite view destroys the scriptural ground of assurance altogether. J.I. Packer once wrote this, the other view, quote, destroys the scriptural ground of assurance altogether. My salvation depends not on, in this view, what Christ did for me, but on what I subsequently do for myself. 
end of quote. He, he's, he's saying this. If we've got a false view of the atonement, it's down to me. Grasp this. If you're saved, you were saved on Golgotha in the early AD 30s. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me cl close with a quote from Richard Phillips from his book, What's So Great About the Doctrines of Grace? And he writes of the movie Saving Private Ryan. Let me just quote his uh, paragraph here. The movie Saving Private Ryan tells of a rescue operation immediately after the Allied invasion of Normandy in June 1944. The War Department learns that three out of four sons in a family named Ryan have died in battle on the same day. The Army's top general orders that the fourth son be rescued from behind German lines, where he parachuted on D-Day. An elite squad of army rangers is assigned to find Private Ryan. The search leads to a bridge where German tanks are trying to break through Allied lines. And there the squad is destroyed as the quest finally succeeds. As the captain who saved Ryan lies dying on the bridge, surrounded by the bodies of the men from his squad, he draws Ryan close and gasps, earn this, earn it. The movie concludes with Ryan as an old man returning to the cemetery where the men who died for him were buried, falling to his knees at Captain Miller's grave. He says to the white plaster cross, every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all of you have done for me. Turning to his wife who comes up beside him, he stammers, tell me I have lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Now Richard Phillips. He writes, we praise God that we are not required to earn what Christ has done for us. For we never could do so. We receive his death by simple faith alone. Jesus never demands that we earn what he did for us. But the Bible does tell us to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. Colossians 1.10 so we can turn to his wooden cross every day and say, if with all your glory you, the Son of God, died for me, then I can live for you. We live not merely for a principle and not even for a great cause. We live for a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died not merely for a principle or even for the greatest of causes. He died for us. So every Christian can say, I live for him because he died 
for me. He died for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonders of the cross. We were saved, all Christians, all who will be the ransomed, were saved at Golgotha by the Lord Jesus Christ on that faithful, prophesied, God-ordained day in the early A.D. 30s. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.